This podcast is supported by Patreon. You can show your support on patreon.com slash toadsanime and get four early episodes a month for just a few bucks. Plus it helps Ryan buy Digimon toys. Alternatively, spend it on something more important. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Toad on Games podcast. The only podcast in the world that starts with the phrase the only podcast in the world and has nothing to follow it up with. With me today, I have Liam Edwards. Um, do you want to say hello, maybe a little bit about who you are and the good things that you do? Yeah, of course. Hi, I'm Liam. Uh, I am a game director and game designer in Kyoto, Japan, uh, and I've worked on quite a numerous amount of games in the past. I previously worked in AAA, and now I make indie games in Japan. I love it. It's that. It's that. It's that awesome AAA to indie story we love to hear about. <laughs> which is becoming more and more common as we move forward it really is <laughs> yeah it actually is yeah there's so many people that, that that make that transition now which is super interesting yeah there's a lot of um advantages to switching to indie and also um i think everyone's well aware of the sort of uh working dynamic in AAA these days and the mm. you know the rose shine of working at big AAA studios is kind of maybe not there as much as it once was and the mm. tools of accessibility to making games now as a solo or small team is uh, quite accessible. Mm. Yeah, I find it super interesting that you get like the small indie developers on itch that I'm sure one day dream of working for like a big AAA studio. Meanwhile, the people at the AAA studios are like, I hope I can make a commercially successful <laughs> game on my own. Yeah, it is the, uh, the weird uh, paradox of the games industry it's like the most successful industry in the world in terms of like media and money mm -hmm. but in actual sustainability and you know making your own business it's it's really tough that's it we just need them all to swap places if all the indies and all the AAA folk just do a nice swap everyone's happy i mean then there's more common ground between them and you'll find that most successful indies um will have come out of nowhere and you'll be like wow who's this person who made x game and then actually when you google them and you run through their backstory you can say uh they probably have like 10 years of game experience at a triple a studio um it's yeah. just that you've never heard of them before because they worked at a triple a studio um, yeah that tends yeah. to be more and more that is the case um which is you know it speaks to the way maybe the industry is going a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And I find all that super interesting as well. I mean, obviously it's great when there's a small indie that has, you know, made this game in their bedroom on their own and it blows up. That yeah. really happens. But it is, it is super cool when someone that was an employee at a AAA studio that perhaps wasn't a widely known name to the gaming public. Um, yeah. Like spins off and does something on their own and, and, and find success that way. Like that's always an awesome story to hear. And, and as you say, yeah, that's happening a lot more. Like that is, that is quite often now. I think it's that case, right? The tools were always really hard to get hold of and you had to work at big studios that could afford to build the tech or, you know, afford the licenses for using things like unreal uh, back in the day but now those things are readily available. So if you have tons of experience in using Unity and using Unreal and you have savings, then maybe it's worthwhile, you know, going off and doing a product of yourself. I think everybody who works at a AAA studio or has some experience in game development has the ability to understand what is required to make a game by themselves and how to stick to like a, a scope and stick to a schedule and knows how expensive those things are. So usually... It doesn't surprise me, which is weird to say sometimes when you hear about indie developers who have gone off and then made uh, made a game but come from a AAA background and they've been successful mm. because they just have the innate 
experience to make those projects a success if you get me um because they've been doing it for so long it's just in a different capacity now uh, but yeah, I think uh, it is rarer to maybe find those bedroom hits as it once was, um, just because the space is so full of experienced people now who are realizing they can leave AAA jobs and uh, go work in indie. Uh, but yeah, it's still very hard. I mean, how many games are released on Steam and Switch a week now? It's still very hard to, you know, fight in that space. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. And um, I guess it, it's back in the 80s and so when people used to work in the games industry it was more of just a job whereas we're at a point now where people that are in those studios grew up wanting to work in video games so i wouldn't be surprised if most people in AAA studios already had their own ideas bubbling in their heads yeah i mean even when i so next year will be like my 10 years in working in games well i mean this technically is my 10th year but i I count like being an intern at GameSpot back in the day as like the first (laughs) real thing that happened. Um, Mm -hmm. But even when I joined Rockstar in like late 2011 and early 2012 was that uh, I didn't really know about indie and there wasn't really such a thing. I knew about, you know, Indie Game the Movie and I knew that Xbox Live Arcade was a thing, but I still thought you had to join a studio to be able to access those tools and make those games or or even learn like I had studied computer science in university and I was terrible at it, but I still didn't quite understand how games were made. And then I got my job at Rockstar starting out in QA. And uh, then I started to learn like, oh, this is why nobody does this because it's so complicated. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And actually, that's something I hear uh, uh, happen a lot as well is people that start off in industry in QA. Or I suppose you were an intern first, but that, that that worked in QA and then they go into more development-based roles. Yeah. I mean, that's quite a common path, right? It's like you just start at the bottom and then you just rise your way through, right? Um, QA is easily the job that... I mean, and QA is incredible, but it's true that it's an entry-level position. Um, mm. And QA is a vital part, but it's there because the it's ultimately repetitive kind of boring work sometimes it's crucial but it is easily the hardest thing to do um over and over again but it doesn't require you to have a computer science degree it doesn't require you to have a phd or you know a a master's or anything it's the easiest way to get into video games and then learn the skills on the job and then progress forward which is awesome to hear really because i think a lot of people listening um to this may think that it's a very difficult industry to get into which i suppose it is but it's it, hopefully it's enlightening to some people to know that there is that entry point because i think that's what people are lacking is to know is there an entry point yeah which surprises me because i mean there's so many different ways to tackle getting into the games industry and i'm just one of those that has had two very different pathways to two different very different things like ultimately if i really reflect on where i'm at now my time at Rockstar doesn't really matter. It's all the stuff I did by myself when I had moved to Japan and I was making my own games and all the stuff I learned by myself that reflects on my my indie experience in terms of making mm-hmm. indie games. But it's bolstered by my understanding of scheduling and sticking to deadlines and pressure because of AAA. Um, but in terms of QA and getting into that job it was a case of just applying for a job that i was told about that sounded really cool um Mm. a person who i was friends with who i talked to about one piece manga (laughs) was just like hey there's a job here do you want to come and i was like absolutely i you know i just 
I did my intern at GameSpot, which was when Danny O'Dwyer was there and he was great. And I loved talking about games, but ultimately all I've ever wanted to do was make video games. Um, mm-hmm. So it did seem like the early, the easiest and earliest way I could get into games. And it's funny, I, got, I, I remember getting there and being like, oh my God, this is it. Like the, I, I would never want a different job um ever and of course games industry throws its curveballs at you and you realize that (laughs) it's not all it's cracked up to be um but yeah i just applied because somebody told me and that it can be how easy it is to get in the Mm. thing is that ultimately it's the games industry so everybody wants to be a part of it which it tends Mm. to be the hard part yeah, I've always said it may not be helpful for people to hear, but I've always said there is some luck involved sometimes that mm. you know you have to see a job pop up or. Oh or yeah, one hundred percent right. And it is those people like I. It's really hard because even you know reflecting on selling games now, you know a big part of selling games as an indie dev is putting yourself out there, putting yourself on Twitter, making videos, making gifts, talking about your games. Mm. And for some devs, that's really hard, right? A lot of video game developers are introverted. So you have to put yourself out there. And it's the same when you're applying for jobs, right? Um, Putting yourself out there really helps, you know, get yourself on Twitter, start talking about games, start sharing interest, you know, building up some form of portfolio is always great. It's not necessary. Like it wasn't necessary for me when I joined Rockstar. And ultimately the first time I applied for my job at Rockstar, I actually didn't get the job. And it wasn't until six months after that when I did get it. Um, so it can be a long process, but if I was to advise anybody who wanted to make games and not just rely on getting a job, it would be just to start like YouTube is your best friend. (laughs) Like Mm. go to YouTube, uh, Google for a tutorial about game maker or unity or Godot or something, and then just start. And then you will be already like 90% ahead of most people who want a job in the games industry. Yeah, you also raise a really interesting point about how, um, and I feel this is the case for a lot of facets of the games industry, about how it's not all about, if you're going in development, about developing a game, or in my case, if you're in journalism, not just about writing about games, but about the communication side of it. So marketing, and that's something that a lot of small indie devs don't even consider sometimes until they've released a game and then realize why is no one playing it. Yeah, it's scary to be honest it's it's really scary i'm kind of lucky that having done i'm this weird in between where i make games and i'm a director of video games but i'm not really i'm known as a game developer but the games i i worked on are not really the games i'm known for and the thing i'm known for is podcasting and doing like the dan sons podcast and the final games podcast and that is where most of like my marketing push comes from as like a, a as a, like a brand and a person and that's really scary because ultimately that's nothing to do with games right it's like it's people who know me as an entity who trust that i'm some sort of quality no matter what i do so if i make a game they're all gonna go play it and that's really weird and that <laughs> tends to be how you have to sell games these days like you see so many popular game creators unless you're like Toby Fox, right? And you don't say anything and you just make a million dollars, like hundreds of millions of dollars making Undertale, which is totally great. But, you know, you most popular game creators are all out there on Twitter. They have 20 to 30,000 followers. They're talking every day. They're keeping their face and their voice like current. Um, They talk about topical games industry issues because, you know, not only are they obviously incredibly insightful voices, and their experiences are, are really helpful to people, but 
you know, they also need that social capital almost to then, mm -hmm. when they release something, turn that into some sort of traction for selling games. And what we're seeing now is that publishers are paying more and more attention to that. So it's really important that you are kind of doing those things, which can be very scary. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's it's almost like indie devs have to be their own brand now. And, yes. for, and even personally, like I'm not, a, I'm not on the development side of stuff, but the reason I'm so involved in Twitter and I share game news and all that stuff is not just because I'm interested in it, which of course I am, but for that exact same reason is even on my side of stuff, I have to be involved. I have to be seen to be doing it. And if yeah, I, if I yeah. don't like share news for like a week from on holiday, I tweet like, oh my God, people are going to think I'm irrelevant and I'm not in the industry yep. anymore. It's, and it's, it's that, I mean, it's painful. It is painful and it's scary, right? And it's something you really have to be passionate about or it's something you really, really need to want. And if you're, if you're not... Like if you're not having fun making games anyway, don't do it. But if the rest of the other things scare you, at least have somebody else on your team who is going to do that for you because then you're going to yeah. be successful, right? You might release your game, get lucky. The game's really popular. Somebody picks it up and then you, you know, the golden ticket you've won, right? Mm -hmm. But so many games come out every week that you've never heard of and that have been made by a team that took two to three years to make that game and they failed, right? And that's terrifying and then you google their twitter and their twitter has like 300 followers or something like that and you're like oh my god that's even more terrifying because that's the reality of the situation um it is yeah i i mean i mad respect to people like yourself and and uh our good mutual friend uh will push dustin like pumping out content all the time which returns mm -hmm. you know it's good content and you return those followers and it's like seeing will um you know <laughs> gonna shout out and pull him in there i i hired will at q games because he's so good at what he does right and he's on it like he's on it every single day um mm -hmm. and he deserved that shot because he was putting out so much right more than anybody else so there was never a better candidate because he was very visible mm. yeah he's a very good example of someone that's managed to Although again, he's he's previously not been on the development side of stuff, but he's very, he's someone that's managed to make himself the brand. Like yes. people will actively follow him and talk about him when he's not there in in community posts and stuff like. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah, and it's weird because right, he always wanted to be in video game development for as long as I've known him, and I was so happy to finally be able to give him that shot because I knew that. But it is you just need one person to know who you are and take a shot on you, mm -hmm. and then you hopefully repay that in favor by working really hard um but yeah it is it, there are so many different ways to get in the industry now i i think that's a good thing and i think there are more than ever mm. ways to get in do going into AAA by applying for a job and getting it that is a very stable way of staying in the games industry for a long time you're gonna possibly suffer through some really tough work conditions if you work in AAA. i don't know if everybody's gonna change but um if you want to do indie and stuff like that there are you know, the barrier to entry is way more accessible than anything else, but it comes with so many other stipulations, which is, of course, these things that we're talking about now. Yeah, totally. Um, I guess moving on to, 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 to Q Games in general, seeing as you brought it up, hmm. um, I might be retreading on, on an, an old ground with what I um, recorded with, with Push Dustin um, not too <laughs> long ago, but, but it's, it's, it's interesting speaking to you both because I've always, I've, I've been a fan of Q Games for a very long time. Um, the 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 Pixel Junk games, Pixel Junk Shooter Ultimate, is genuinely in one of is like one of my top ten games ever. Awesome, that's um, cool. Pixel, Pixel Junk Monsters One and Two are 
my favorite tower defense games and two of the only games I've managed to get my non-gaming partner to play with me. Why, <laughs> but he likes them. So yeah, it's 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 a really cool company, and it's obviously really great to see that Push Dustin is there now. Yeah, it's uh, well, it's actually it is a, an amazing place to work. And actually, I I left at their studio at the end of last year, so I like mm. for me, it's all um, pretty weird again. Um, I directed a project there called Scrappers. I co-directed mm. it with my good friend Ariokasan, and I designed it. Um, and then I was the creative director towards the end of the studio, like. Um, towards the end of my time at the studio. And there was a lot of interesting and cool things that were going on that studio. Um, it's known for trying different things. Uh, you know, mm. you can see their portfolio, like Eden and monsters. They're very, very different games, but they have this artistic nature to them. That is right at the heart of the design of the games and stuff like that. And, you know, it's amazing to think that, you know, games like shooter and monster and, um, nom nom galaxy and they're, they're getting on for like 10 years old or even older than that and yet still so many people hold them you know in pretty high esteem which is a credit to the people that get hired at that studio yeah absolutely yeah it's so good to see such a such a variety of stuff coming out of that place um and and scrappers was i, I may be wrong here is that is that the first apple arcade q games games Te technically yes um if you look at credits, no, because Frogger from Konami, the Apple Arcade game, was actually developed by Q Games, and that came right, out first. Okay. But that is technically a Konami game uh, that was, you know, developed by us internally uh, uh, for them. Um, but the actual first uh, Q Games game, uh, Pixel, well, not well under the Pixel Junk publishing banner, I guess, or development banner, um, was Scrappers, yeah. Um, gotcha. which released in April of last year. Oh my God, it's so long ago. Time. <laughs> I know. Scary. Oh my gosh. Oh, shit. <laughs> terrifying. Um, that's interesting. I didn't even realize that Q Games did like outsourcing stuff, but I guess that's something that a lot of developers do that not many Yeah, I mean, it especially happens a lot in Japan. Like, you know, Nintendo, what Nintendo are like. If you looked at most Nintendo modern releases, you'd be like, wait, that was made by who? And you're, you know, Intelligent Systems or Tose or um, other development studios around Kyoto and Tokyo that developed those games for them. Uh, there's a lot of that in Japan. Capcom are the same as well. Uh, but yeah, uh, Q Games has done stuff like Armored Core and uh, you know Ace Combat and all all sorts of stuff that you probably don't know about. Yeah, yeah, I, I guess that's that's one really cool thing about um, about developers is sometimes they will just pop up in credits where they're not like the main developer. They don't have the name on the box. Yeah, and they're just in the credits. I'm like, what is ha what? Ah. <laughs> I mean, I like the Japanese industry. I mean, I'm not the biggest expert, but I've been here a few years now, which is. Mm -hmm. It's small, right? The reality is it's really small, especially here in Kyoto. It's uh, it's a small industry and everybody knows each other and everybody tends to want to help each other out, right? We want to make the best games possible, whether we work at uh, Q Games or we work at 17-bit here in Kyoto or you work at Vitae or Chuhai Labs or uh, Nintendo or anywhere in Kyoto. Everybody kind of wants to help each other out. Everybody knows each other. So there's a lot of like lending and helping and tech gets shared and, and there is a lot of stuff like that that goes around and it is that kind of stuff especially you know when there's lulls in development because you're either working on a prototype or you know there's not a full production going on doing that kind of contract work is very helpful for studios uh not just in japan but you know everywhere in general yeah i mean that's that's super nice to hear that, that it's very sort of in interconnected everyone's helpful for each other i yes. guess 
it's 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 funny really because I, I assume for a lot of people listening and certainly for myself i don't feel that many people speak that openly much about how the games industry is in japan or works in japan or perhaps it's my own ignorance and not knowing that many people that, that do work in japan yeah i mean it's it's so weird because it's my entire world right but then i forget mm. that you know uh we're not on the world scale uh you know a lot of indie developers come from seattle for example right seattle is like a hotbed of like the most successful indie developers in the world and um there's like spotlights on that and then i feel like the uk specifically as well is kind of up and coming there's a lot of solo devs in in indie in the uk which is weird because for many many years it was mostly you know double a studios or triple a studios you know um uh, Guildford and and places like that in the UK were mainly the places where anybody who worked in game dev were, was at. Um, but Kyoto has, you know, we have three, four uh, indie studios really, and then there are Japanese. More, it's kind of hard to say. It's like there is, there are studios in Japan uh, in, in Kyoto specifically that are that have Japanese staff and are Japanese companies, but you know, they tend to either be run run by foreigners or they predominantly have foreigners or, uh, you know, they have like a sort of worldwide ethos compared to, for example, other studios in Kyoto, like intelligent systems, which are much more Nintendo focused, much more Japanese in their user base. Um, you know, we have like the guys who make like, uh, Ponos. So the people who do like battle cats and stuff like that as well. Um, mm. all these games that are really like focused on Japanese audiences compared to the indie studios that are more typical of indie developers that sell products on steam and PS five or, or, you know, Xbox series X game pass and, and stuff like that. Um, but you know, it's the one thing that's kind of weird about the Japanese games industry. It's full of like, if we go back, you know, 20 minutes to how we started this conversation, which is, you know, experienced AAA developers or experienced game developers who then go off and make indie. That is like Kyoto to a T. <laughs> Most people who work in indie series here in Kyoto have prior game experience somewhere else and have been drawn to Japan for whatever reason, one or another uh, to make games here. And it tends to be like, I don't know compared to other places, but I find Kyoto to just be so full of really talented people. Um, people who have tons of years of experience in their specialist field, whether it's programmers, engineers, artists, animators, or anything. Uh, there's like people who've worked on Breath of the Wild. There's people who worked on Xenoblade. There are people who worked on uh, Jet Set Radio. People who worked on Res. People like all these, like somebody will just be like, oh yeah, I remember when I worked on Fable. And you're like, what? Like you worked on Fable, that's amazing, right? Like this, you always have that kind of weird thing in Kyoto, and everybody's tangentially connected to Nintendo. You know, there's a lot of business with Nintendo in Kyoto, so then you meet the more experienced Nintendo people. Uh, you know, the Zelda team or the Mario team or whatever. Um, so it tends to be like this really inspiring place, full of like experience and optimism, and, and it really is quite unique, I think. Um, and it's up and coming, right? It's so weird because Q Games tends to be probably what everybody knows from Japan outside of, in terms of indie, for sure. Um, but we have Bit Summit now, uh, and Bit Summit brings people from all around the world to come and see game developers from Japan. And those people then take those games away. And then when they see them on Steam or on Switch, they tell Twitter. And then, you know, that folds into other people learning about studios. In Japan, like for example, in three days' time, um, there is a studio in Kyoto called Skeleton Crew, and one of the developers there is called Tomar Olsen. He's a French developer here. Uh, his game Olia, uh, published by Devolver, is about to be released in three days' time, 
And mm-hmm. I'm incredibly proud of him and I'm incredibly excited for him. But, you know, you see Devolver tweet about that and people are going crazy. It's got like 1,000 retweets, but nobody knows that it's developed in Kyoto, Japan. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So it's kind of changing. Like there are, there's more people taking an interest in what's happening here in Kyoto, for sure. That's super interesting, especially when a lot of people, obviously, if they think about video games, they think about Japan being such a hotbed of it. But I guess it is, even even with, with Japanese studios now, it's very, a lot of it is Western focused. So the reason, is that the reason why you have foreign why, why it's quite common for there to be foreign staff in japan is that so that they have sort of an in to, to the west is that um it's a really hard question to answer because i don't necessarily think um i mean you think about q games q games is still predominantly full of japanese staff members sure. um even though it is run by dylan cuthbert who worked on star fox but he, you know, himself, he's basically half Japanese. He's lived in Japan predominantly for most of his life. He grew up when he was 18 working at Nintendo. Um, he speaks fluent Japanese. His family is Japanese. You know, everybody here still has like, it's not like they've just moved over here for a job. But, uh, mm-hmm. You know, um, even, you know, Jake Kasdahl, who runs 17-bit, he works on Res and uh, he worked on Jet Set Radio, uh, not Jet Set Radio, sorry, Space Channel 5. Um, and he himself and his family are Japanese and he's been here for such a long time as well. It's like uh, almost foreigners that have been and, and embedded themselves quietly for a very, very long time. Um, you don't tend to have people uprooting their entire life to come here on a whim for a job. And then mm-hmm. organically, you just find people who are really talented here who end up like myself at these studios <laughs> in some weird way. Um, so I don't know necessarily if it draws foreigners here uh, because there is still like a, a worldwide focus on for these studios. Um, I think it's just this weird thing that happens and then people end yeah. up here and and then they make games. It's really weird. Yeah, that's fair enough. I mean, yeah, that's that's if if they're people that have already been very interconnected into Japan and Japanese culture and they've always yeah I think you I think you'd find more the people who are desperate to come to Japan oh of course Japan like I'm not gonna kid is one of the best places to live in the world I'm so very grateful and very lucky that I live here um the people who really want to aspire to live and work in Japan I mean those types of people are already gonna be like well I want to work for Capcom I want to work for Nintendo I want to work in the past for Konami I want to work for uh, you know, level five, they, you know, if they already have a vision of Japan and they want to uproot their life to go live in Japan, they're not really going to look at indie studios. I think to, yeah. for that, they're going to look at those companies that already make them feel something about Japan, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That makes complete sense. Um, yeah. I guess, I guess in general worldwide, like not many people are uprooting or even moving states to, to, to move to an indie studio. Yeah. Like, yeah. A, I mean, yeah. You find in America, like the West coast, right. You have people moving back and forth from like San Francisco to Seattle and stuff like that. And possibly New York sometimes, but beyond that, it's very tough. Right. Um, even in Seattle, right. If you're working on games and sometimes you go across the border and you go up to like Toronto or Vancouver and, um, you know, even those places are a real good hotbed for indie games now. But yeah, I I feel like Kyoto's up and coming. The studios, Q Games is obviously the probably the biggest and and the biggest name. Um, but when Galaxy came out for seventeen bit, you know that that did really well. It was really successful for them and and ranked really high. So a lot of people expect something of their next title. Um, as I mentioned, Olier is coming out from Skeleton Crew and it's published mm-hmm. by Devolver. You know, it's like the first game published by you know a big indie publisher 
like Devolver that's coming from Japan. So who knows what will happen after Aaliyah comes out next uh, in a couple of days time. Everybody might suddenly know or suddenly start paying attention. Uh, and it's great. Like um, recently we had Justin Ma who made FTL and Into the Breach. He moved to Kyoto and he's a great addition to the community here as well. And um, mm-hmm. he's like, you know, working on his whatever he's doing by himself here in Kyoto. So I think there's more and more people just attracted to the lifestyle in Japan, but not necessarily coming because they want to get into the games industry here. It's a weird yeah. thing. They kind of don't go together. <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. It makes sense. Um, cool. Yeah, that's that's an interesting insight. I suppose, uh, as I said, like there's, I, I don't, perhaps it's my own ignorance and then who I follow and don't follow, but I don't see that many people talk about what the game i'm, I'm sure they <laughs> it's, it's true and that's it's funny because th- that's what i mean when the industry is so small actually the people who are the loudest voices here in kyoto probably myself dylan uh you know push dustin will uh and that's it really <laughs> like mm. everybody is quiet and they generally tend to be older people and you know they're just happy making games living their life right yeah. um they are not doing what we spoke about like a couple of minutes ago which is pushing themselves out there to really sell their brand mm. and doing that they're not they're those types of people generally um you know there are maybe some up and coming new people here in Kyoto who are doing that myself included, probably um, that are the loudest voices that are going to be known for being in Kyoto just because they're the only people speaking. Right. But that's maybe why you feel that way because there tends to be not that type of uh, approach from studios here in Japan. Mm. Yeah. And, and I also, I don't speak Japanese, so <laughs> I, I, maybe there are people that are, that are, that are doing <laughs> well, that definitely on Japanese accounts. Yeah, and that's the other thing is like even those studios, which are known as the biggest studios here in Japan, they predominantly don't really work with Japanese developers, like solo developers. And there's still um, still a lack of really good, you know, apart from, you know, you have Moppin uh, who made mm-hmm. Downwell, Ojiro-san. Uh, and, and there are a couple of other people, um, uh, Konosan, who who I've worked with before, who made ba- Batloon, and there are some upcoming, but there's still a distinct lack of indie developers in Japan. Um, if you follow like Archipel or Asobu, who are a really good community in Tokyo for indie developers based off the back of Tokyo Indies, um, there are some really great games coming from younger developers in Japan, but they are still basically students. And then those people get scooped up by Nintendo and Capcom, and then you never see them again. And that still kind of is a problem in Japan. And it's the reason why things like BitSummit was set up to try and give those developers like a voice and a platform to be able to say to the world, like, we are making games here. Um, but that's still still a struggle because one, the language barrier is really tough for those developers. You know, they're predominantly Japanese people who only speak Japanese. Uh, and then secondly, um, nobody's paying attention to Japan outside of the big companies. So yeah, but it, you know, hopefully it's changing with places like BitSummit and Asobo and uh, other things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Ho- hopefully so. I mean, when we think about indie games being commercially successful and viable, it's kind of relatively a recent thing still. Like yeah, kind of boomed with like Super Meat Boy and Braid and World of Goo and stuff, which wasn't that long ago. That was like the yeah. Wii era. Um, yeah, the, so the Xbox was... Live Arcade era is like what in my mind when things just exploded. Mm. It, yeah, 
it's it's yeah it's still tough it's like we've covered the ground already you know how many games are released in steam per week so many how the hell are you meant to fight against that rising tide well one your game has to be good that's like the the minimum and then everything else is like the icing on the cake right are you popular online do you have a voice do you, are you going to talk about your game are you streaming your game are you do you have other people streaming your game it's a Ah, it's a it's a, an exhausting but exciting kind of thing to be doing. Just don't bank your house on it. Would be my yeah. advice. <laughs> Which some people do. It's terrifying. Some people yeah. do. They'll be like, right, come on, let's remortgage the house. Like, yeah, I. It's funny. Like I, there's so many different aspects of like uh, the whole industry, and it, I find it really frustrating sometimes personally when people we we live in this weird era where triple a there's only triple a and there's indie right that's mm. it in people's mind yeah. it's black and white it's either triple a or it's indie right whereas like maybe ps3 era generation 360 or even going further back like i would think like a game like ghost of tsushima for example would be like a double a game yeah like if you think of something like infamous or you know by the same studio nobody would have classified that as a triple a game at the time uh you know the triple a games were much bigger in budget they were you know huge marketing campaigns and those type of games didn't get that but now because there's such a distinct lack of really expensive blockbuster games uh something like ghost of tsushima comes along and is like a really really big deal um but off the back of that that means that everything else that doesn't look like that is an indie game so mm -hmm. you have indie games like spelunky 2 which look like other indie games but their budget was in the millions of dollars compared to a game made by a student that got maybe cost like $50,000, right? They have yeah. very vastly different budgets and vastly different production cycles. And Spelunky 2 is made probably just as similar to a AAA development than anything indie and mm. has big budgets, yet forever will be known as indie. And then people have this really skewed vision that every game that's indie should look like Hades. Um, <laughs> and then that becomes really tough. Uh, so it, it's kind of, it's, yeah, it's a little frustrating and a, a little difficult. Um, and yeah, when you're making those games, how do you try to convince people that the game that you, you know, costs $200,000 to make is, you know, worth their money right when they can spend the same amount of money on something like spelunky 2 which is a really good example because it's a fantastic game um that's why betting the house uh betting your house is maybe not the best of ideas try to get <laughs> publishing help and and then yeah. and i this sounds really bad but please ignore really successful developers on twitter whose advice is to self-publish your games and take all the money and don't listen to publishers because that's not a great idea either if you don't have any money and you need funding um mm. Yeah, there's a lot of caveats and weird things that you need to think about. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a really good point about saying that in in especially in consumers' minds, that there's AAA and indie and yeah. nothing in between. Because I remember again before that big indie boom happened, indie for me because I was involved in like the freeware scene was like these tiny, tiny free little jams yeah. and stuff. That was indie for me. And then I stuff like World of Goo would be coming out and I'd be like, that's not that's not like indie in the same way that it is in my head. That's like a big 
like commercial product. Um, and as you say, like something like Splunk 2, which I'm sure had a million or several million dollars involved in its in its development back in the day, in like PS1, PS2, that would have just been a game that came out and was at retail. And no one would, yeah. would have ever considered that it was indie. Um, yep. But yeah, it's either like God of War and The Last of Us or <laughs> indie. <laughs> or it's indie, yeah. And it, it's scary because that is the consumer market that you have to sell your game to. And, and that's not the reality, right? Uh, you think of something like Super Meat Boy Forever that's just come out. Um, that mm-hmm. game took, what, four years or so? Uh, came off yeah, the back of a really that. successful game. Uh, paying staff to work on a game full-time for four years is going to cost you millions of dollars. Um, especially when that team is going to be more than 10, 15, 20, even though that's a really small team. Uh, you can do quick maths in your head and you'll be like, Wow video games cost a lot of money to make uh and that's very different to you know as we would just mentioned like the freeware indie or, or what i grew up with which was like new gowns flash games mm-hmm. um like i think if you ask the uh <laughs> the super flash brothers uh who made uh they made flash games on new grounds and then those guys went on to make snipper clips and tangle tower and mm-hmm. really successful games um but they started by making games in their bedroom Right. And I imagine for them, the production, the way they make games has not really changed, but the amount of money it costs to make them has exponentially tripled, doubled, quadrupled or whatever. Um, mm. And is very, very different to making those Flash games back in the day. Yeah, completely. And it's so interesting seeing people make that transition as well. Like there's so many developers from the Newgrounds era, from mm. the Freeway era, that have gone on to make com- commercially successful games. Like I mean, yeah. Song, they all came from that scene. Yeah, when you have literally the guy who made Newgrounds, Tom Fulp, go on and make Castle Crashes and really pave the mm-hmm. way for Xbox Live Arcade, a lot of people are going to follow. And yeah. uh, I'm very grateful for that because I don't think many of us would be here making indie games now if that had not happened. You know, Braid, Super Meat Boy, Castle Crashes, World of Goo, um, the WiiWare titles at the time as well. Um, mm-hmm. If there wasn't people dangling, you know, projects in front of big publishers like microsoft and nintendo at the time i don't think the industry would be where it's at now for better or for worse which is everything's really accessible and easy to you know well it's not easy but you know it's easier to make games uh but at the same time that means it's easier for everybody so you have ten thousand games released a week um But without them doing that, then tools wouldn't have become accessible. People wouldn't be working in games like now. And I probably wouldn't be here either. I'd probably still be at Rockstar or some other AAA studio or not even working in games at all. So, um, yeah, it's it's really tough. It's all a bit weird. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> there's so many cons in it and, and, and uh, so many pros and cons to... Uh, but I, 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 I know, and it sounds really weird, but I wouldn't trade it at all for the world. And anybody who wants to get into games absolutely should try. And... Mm-hmm. Um, they sh- you shouldn't let that stop you right it, it people talk about the indie apocalypse all the time but if you look at the yeah. facts the reality is if you're smart enough you get publisher funding you do marketing correctly you do all these things you you dip your toes into branding yourself and and you know putting yourself out there more than likely after a couple of times maybe you fail in the first game the second but you know after a while people are going to realize oh that came from you know that niche the developers of that niche game before and you're going to build traction. There is an incredible GDC talk um, that is done by uh, his name is Gray Alien on Twitter. I forget his real name. Oh, sorry. Uh, but he did a great GDC talk uh, that was like 11 years of game dev without a hit. 
and mm-hmm. it, it just talks about him, you know, basically making money enough a year to survive and his games just going under the radar slowly. And, and, you know, he's happy just making games. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I think if you're happy making games and that's what you want to do, then you just have to make the minimum viable and you'll be fine. Yeah, it's also when we're talking about indie success, not every indie game needs to be Undertale or Sleeping Boy. Like I'm sure for for someone again making making games on their own and and stuff, getting like five thousand, ten thousand sales would blow their mind. Oh my god! Um, yeah, like absolutely. <laughs> like you, it, we're talking indie is the only. It's so weird because indie is the only industry or video games the only industry where somebody can make nothing. Or they can make a million dollars. It's so weird. You you either release a game and it's popular and it, it lands on the Steam front page one day and you make a million dollars or you lose all your development costs, right? Um, and then all you can really hope for and what you should be aiming for, you know, obviously do your predictions, do your cash loss, do all those sorts of things and understand how much it is you need to fund your next game or at least fund your prototype and and pay your staff and pay yourself fairly. If you can do that, don't worry about making millions of dollars because you're winning. It means you get to keep making mm-hmm. games. And that is yeah. honestly the best thing that can happen. Like when you have millions of dollars, what would you rather be doing? Well, personally, I would still be making games. So mm-hmm. I, I, all I can hope is that that is what continues to happen. Speaking of indie games, curse to golf. so that looks that looks super interesting um so i i think it's in like early access on itch.io at the moment Mm, Um, yeah yeah you could say that it's um it's more of a prototype than anything uh i wouldn't say anybody who's listening to this who finds the premise interesting i would say you know go try it out but maybe hold out for some stuff later at some point but um Yeah, uh, Custer Golf is essentially, a, a, you know, it goes back to what I just said about loving making games. Uh, mm-hmm. I directed Scrappers last year. We released it. Uh, Corona happened. Lockdown happened. And, you know, we were doing sort of uh, support on Scrappers, you know, what you usually do after you release a game, uh, DLC, bug fixing, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the kind of lull of game development. Like, it's not bad, but, you know, it's not the exciting creative part. Um, so while I was bored, I made a game by myself. <laughs> <laughs> so I would just work all day and then I would work on games at night, which is just very stupid of me. <laughs> <laughs> I hear people do that a lot though. Um, but it looks super interesting. It's like, I guess for people that you should go, go and check it out anyway. But for people that, that, that want to know, it's like a 2d like golf adventure. Game uh, with yeah. Some Metroidvania bits, some roguelike bits. Yeah. Like it's a nice is- mix. Yeah, that is pretty much exactly what it is. It's, it's kind of exactly what it says on the tin. It's uh, uh, I call it a golf-like. That's generally kind of what I call it in my head. Um, it's a golf-like. It's um, I don't know if anybody's listening to this. Uh, of course, if you listen to this, maybe you listen to other video game podcasts, but there is a podcast called Eggplant. Um, it started out as a, a Spelunky sort of uh, dedicated podcast and then devolved into a podcast basically where they talk about roguelikes. And, um, I listened to that podcast a lot. Um, very, very good. Uh, and I was wondering about prototyping a roguelike, uh, but then everybody makes a roguelike. So I was thinking, what can I do differently? And my idea was to make a golf roguelike where the movement of moving around the dungeon would be, uh, a golf ball. 
and you'd hit the golf ball and then you'd move towards where the golf ball is. And the idea would be to just get to the end of the dungeon, uh, which would, you know, then end up being the golf holes. Um, and it's not, it's not quite randomly generated like a golf, uh, like a, like a golf, like, <laughs> like a roguelike. <laughs> um, what happens is there are, there's like a, a certain amount of ho- designed holes. So I've designed them and they all have random elements to them, but they are kind of structured so you can remember them. Uh, but the way they're presented to the player is they're randomly ordered. So every time you start, you could have a different hole every time and then it randomly orders. So it takes from the whole load of holes and then places them in a random order of nine holes for you to tackle. And they vary in difficulty. They have random elements to them. And then the idea is that you hit a golf ball around like a golf game uh, through this 2D dungeon and you use power-ups like a mulligan or uh, like a uh like an explosion and you know various different things <laughs> that are definitely not legal in the real game of golf uh <laughs> to get to the end of the hole and uh yeah it turns out that a lot of people really dig that idea and it did pretty well that, for itself yeah. cool yeah i'm i'm that's i mean that sounds awesome <laughs> i, I, I mean, love it when people kind of... have twists on stuff like that yeah, that, that that is like if anybody would describe me as somebody who made games, that would be the thing. They'd be like, Liam just takes two things and smashes them together. And that that is uh, I can't remember. Somebody na- somebody made a rule. It's like the two niche rule. And uh, you just take two things that seem really stupid and then you make a really cool game out of them. Like, what if you put golf and a roguelike together? Well, there there you go. <laughs> I, that's what yeah. I did. <laughs> Yeah, really that sounds super crazy fun. Uh, yeah, I I hope so. It's um, I won't lie, it's difficult. Uh, it, it, I think the thing that and this goes back to talking about social currency and how Twitter can change everything. Um, I mean, it's free to play. You can play it in browser on the itch page for it. You can just mm-hmm. Google Coast to Golf. I'm sure it'll come up. But uh, the thing that made it spread around Twitter was people kept calling it the Dark Souls of Golf. Um. <laughs> And then you know what that does, right? When something gets called the Dark Souls of Golf, uh, people want to challenge themselves and people want to try that because they're like, well, mm-hmm. I love Dark Souls or I like hard games. I'm definitely going to take that challenge on. Uh, and yeah, and then it spread around and it somehow got written up in Edge magazine about it, which was weird considering it's not even a released game. It's just a prototype. But uh, yeah, it was really cool. Yeah, that's super cool. That's super cool. I'll, um, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to to. to trying that and seeing where that goes i love um i love games that do a, like twists and, and mix genres and stuff i've always been a big fan of that sort of stuff there was um and it seems to be happening with sports things as well which i like because typically i wouldn't enjoy sports games yes and then you've got um um oh my gosh i can't remember the full name behold the kickman or something um, yeah yeah uh, dan's game yeah. Golf Sto- yeah dan's game you've got golf story like 12s mm-hmm. which is like a tennessee like rpg thing and yeah i just love games like, I mean, mixing that sort of stuff yeah there is something inherently great about pulling from sports because they are games with rules right they have a logic mm. to them so that you don't need to do the hard work of thinking of like a core loop or designing rules because they're already there what you do is then you just add to them you you know mm. even if you make a golf roguelike that is in a dungeon the one thing that everybody will understand is that you hit the ball and then you've already created what is really hard about designing games which is introducing your player how to play your game right you think about every rpg you've played you think about um any kind of interesting weird puzzle game like they have to teach they have to teach you the rule set before you can play the game. But if I create something that resembles something everybody understands, 
a sport like soccer or football or um you know tennis or golf uh, every player who it looks at it is going to automatically at least understand 50% of what you're trying to do uh, even if they don't understand the other 50%, they still feel pretty confident about giving it one go. And then all you can hope is after that one go, they try again. And I think sports really helps with that. And uh, it really lends itself. I don't particularly want to make sports games, but you know, once I played Mario Strikers on the GameCube, I was like, okay, <laughs> you can do some pretty cool stuff with sports games. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Again, like I, I, I'm not sports inclined myself. I don't like realistic sports simulators in the same way i don't like re- yeah. realistic racing simulators yeah but anything that twists it and and added their own rules and makes it kind of kook like you say with with your game is going to have explosion stuff pretty sure you're not going to get that in the, yeah in the of course PGA right games <laughs> but um yeah like why would i want to play gran turismo like when i can play mario kart uh mm. yeah that's how i feel why would i kind of want to play why would i want to play pga tour when i can I hit a golf ball around a dungeon. <laughs> That's my yeah. thinking as well, right? Uh, even though I do like, I don't mind playing those games, and I do like them. There's just, you know, there is more fun when there are explosions and things go wrong. <laughs> That's a general rule for video games: more fun when explosions. <laughs> this is a very good rule. All budding game designers out there, this is a very good rule: <laughs> yeah. more screen shake and more explosions. That's it. That's how you make a successful game. <laughs> um yeah thank you thank you so much for talking to me about all these cool things um it's been very insightful hearing about your game and about J- uh, japan development again it's not something i hear regularly perhaps that's my yeah. own fault but yeah it's no no I, I mean yeah just do some google searches and then you'll find some that's cool it. people uh very worth a follow yeah and do you want to tell everyone where they can find you and all your good stuff online? Uh, yeah, that would. Yeah, absolutely. You can find me on Twitter at Liam BME, um, just my name and then BME. Uh, I do a podcast with a YouTuber called Super Bunny Hop um, every week. It's called Dad and Sons. We talk about uh, video games. We have the wonderful Matt Visual, who is also a YouTuber with us, talk about games and life and all kinds of interesting things. Uh Every week, I used to do a podcast called Final Games, um, which was a interview show similar to this, where I interview other game developers about the eight games they would take to a deserted island. It's been on hiatus for a while, but there's like 80 episodes for you to enjoy there if you're inclined. Uh, and then you can also just, uh, you can go to the itch page uh, for Custa Golf, and you can play it in browser for free. Don't worry about that. And uh, yeah, just follow me on Twitter to keep up with uh, the games I'm doing. Uh, I promise around this time next year maybe it'll be worthwhile <laughs> awesome very exciting very interesting and for yeah, everyone listening um the links are in the description wherever you're listening to this as well if you if you if you don't fancy googling they're right thank they're you, right man. there click on thank you um yeah thank you so much for joining me this was awesome um to talk about all these all these cool things i'm super excited to see whatever it is you're working on next thank that you is i appreciate it. i'll have to um keep up with that on on the twitterverse please do then we'll um and cool and thank you so much for listening everyone we will catch you next time laters if you want to support this podcast by the way you can do so at patreon.com slash toads anime there is a new episode of this toad on games podcast every single week where i speak to a different person from the video games industry on each episode so it's very varied it can be youtubers journalists developers composers all sorts hopefully some really interesting people that you will like and yeah, a new episode is out every week. If you do support the podcast on Patreon, you can get access to every episode early on. I think at the moment the pledge is $3, which plus tax it's probably about $4, um, to get access early access to each episode. 
So that's four episodes a month. Hopefully about a dollar a month, basically, per episode, which isn't too bad, I hope. Um, and yeah, you'll get early access on a Friday to every episode, and then they come out publicly on the Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and all that good stuff. Um, so yeah, your support is massively appreciated, even if it is just a dollar. Um, I thank every single person at the end of each episode, which I'm going to do in a second. I always feel like I want to point this out. Maybe I shouldn't. It is very self-defeating, but I don't depend on Patreon money. It's just It just helps make me feel that what I'm doing is worth my time and that it's appreciated. And then I go on eBay for Digimon toys or some random crap. Um, so please, and I mean this, if you are struggling in any way with money, please don't give me anything because it would be wasted. Um, it is just a nice bonus for me. Please only do so if you if you can. Again, that's a very self-defeating thing to say, but I do really appreciate everything and I wouldn't want someone that is in financial difficulty to give me any money. I would feel dreadful. So I read out the names as they're listed on the Patreon uh, relationship manager. I'm terrible at pronunciations. I apologize. And if you want me to name me by any other name, please tell me privately and I will remember and do so next time. But thank you so much to Nick Coveney, Philip Veloti, I'm sure it's Philippe, I'm, I'm dreadfully sorry, KM, Nathan, Romy Halfweeg, David Jarrett, Andy Jones, Kamal Parlaher, Far Few Giants, Robert Cathels, James Coop, Thomas, Francisco Limas, EMH Richard, Corey Class, Chris Wood, Gregory Phillips, Lee Chapman, Stephen, Andy Robertson, Gregory Kroll, Joe Sheedy, and Ryan Winter. Thank you so, so much, whether it's a dollar, three dollars, or whatever. Thank you so much for supporting this. Um, genuinely, it's, it's amazing to even get five dollars total from people. It makes it feel like everything I'm doing has some value and some worth, and that even if one person listening to this is interested, that's awesome. So thank you so much, and I will catch you on the next episode with a real person. Bye for now.